Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. Hi, welcome to another session on the Prison Mindfulness Summit. My name is Bleep Mall, your co-host for this session. And I'm really happy to be here today with Bernard Moss. Welcome, Bernard. How are you? I'm great, Fleet. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. I love that Oakland Raiders poster back there. I used to be a Broncos fan back in the day. Oh, I might have to uh, say we, <laughs> Yeah, I know. We had, we had our thing with the Raiders. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, healthy rivalries are good. <laughs> All right. So uh, I'm going to share your bio with our audience so they get to know you a little bit. And then we'll jump right into the conversation. Sound good? Yes, sir. All right. So Bernard Moss is a grip or guiding rage into power facilitator, a peacemaker, an expert in violence prevention, mindfulness, and emotional intelligence. He currently resides in Pittsburgh, California. Bernard was one of the first to go through and graduate from the grip program at San Quentin. After he graduated, he went on to facilitate three grip groups in San Quentin, I guess. And, yes. uh, and he was granted parole after 28 years and currently facilitates grip at how do you pronounce that? Dual or Dual? Uh, uh, dual Vocational Institute. Yeah, they closed down now. Oh, they did. Yes. And, uh, and also Mule Creek uh, State Prison? Yes, sir. Uh-huh. And, okay. and also at San Quentin State Prison. Oh, at San Quentin. Okay, yes. great. Great. I'm sure we'll get into all that in our conversation today. Okay. All right. So, you know, Bernard, we're certainly going to talk about um, your work as a grip facilitator now uh, that you're out and since you've been out. And also about your experience of uh, of going through the GRIP program at San Quentin. But first, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about sort of who you were and uh, and the world you came from before you ended up at San Quentin with a uh, with a uh, a sentence. I believe it was seven years to life yes, for sir, attempted yes. murder. So tell us a little bit about your background, the world you came from. Okay, well, I, um, I was born in Augusta, Georgia, in 1965. At three years old, uh, my uh, father uh, was in the military, so we transferred from Georgia to uh, Pittsburgh, California, and that's basically where I was raised. Um, uh, started out in the projects of West Pittsburgh, and then we moved to the more eastbound Pittsburgh in the middle of the city. And uh, yeah, I started, I moved there in high school, and that's where I really my life started to change. I started to kind of hang out a little bit in the streets and, uh, you know, I got addicted to street life and, 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 and uh, drug, uh, selling drugs, using drugs, alcohol. Uh, it was, it was a big culture shock for, for me moving from West Pittsburgh to Pittsburgh and just being in that environment. So yeah, it, it was kind of difficult. I, um, was, I committed the crime of attempted murder in 1988. Uh, I was sentenced to seven years to life. Uh, most of my time, I, I really felt I wasn't getting out of prison when I when I was sentenced to seven years to life. So I got into a lot of trouble in prison. I started out in Folsom. Uh, I went to Lancaster, Mule Creek, uh, Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. And in 2002, I got a bus ticket to go to San Quentin. And once I arrived at San Quentin, it was, again, culture shock because I was so used to being so hypervigilant in prison and being around a lot of uh, 
violence and people just uh, not wanting to program and do right. And I got to San Quentin in 2002 and I saw all these guys running around with backpacks on. Uh, they had made their laundry bags in the backpacks and they were, everybody was off in a hurry to get somewhere. And I was like, what's going on here? Where are all these people going? And someone told me they're going to groups. And I, I had no idea about uh, self-help groups at, at that time. So that was my introduction to self-help and uh, meeting Jock uh, Verdun, who uh, at that time, was uh, running a group at San Quentin called Catargio. And Catargio was short for putting away the things that bind you. So uh, I got involved with Catargio and uh, I didn't buy in. I wasn't one of the people who really thought that this stuff worked, right? The mindfulness and the, you know, I just was like, this is all baloney, this food, you know, and, and, and that was my belief. So, but, uh, Jock never gave up on me. He always stuck with me and always told me I had a place in his class and I, I was still getting into a lot of trouble in prison. I was in and out of ADSEG and, you know, uh, GRIP started a few years later. I got there in 2002, I think 2011, GRIP started. And I was chosen to be a part of that GRIP program and it's like life-changing for me. A lot of people, it was a place where I felt safe to share my trauma and I shared the things that I had been through in my life. And yeah, it, it, it was a, a good change for me. And I, I just jumped in feet first and, and decided that it was time to, uh, to change. Also. Well, before we go further into the grip process and the changes you went through, I, I want to really help our audience understand, you know, your, your background. Um, yes. So, um, uh, you know, and, and the, the change in beliefs, the change in mindset, Right. So when you, once you got involved in the street life and selling drugs and doing drugs and so forth, and it became completely normal for you to carry a weapon, right? Yes. Uh, well, and, yeah. and, you know, the fact that, uh, that, you know, um, I understand that you, you have been shot at and you've probably been involved in other types of gun violence. And in this, in this case, you know, you, you shot somebody who, I don't know whether it was a drug deal went bad or just a, some kind of being disrespected, but it was kind of like, it was kind of like you were almost living in the wild west where that's just the way people did things. And right. uh, it wasn't like you were deciding to uh, I'm going to go do this bad thing. It was just kind of, that's the world and the mindset you're in. Can you talk a little bit about being in that belief and mindset so we can really understand the the, the transformation from that mindset to the mindset uh, that you developed within the grip program. Yes, I can. So I, um, I always described my life back then as, uh, we, we had a saying about guns. I'd rather be caught with one by the police than caught without one by uh, our opponents out there in the streets. So I, I, um, looked at a firearm or gun as a necessity and a piece of, as I got dressed every morning, I always put a gun in my belt. You know, so it was like it, this was part of my everyday attire, uh, running around the streets with weapons and uh, shootouts and, and different things of that nature. Um, not proud of it, uh, but that it was what I believed in at that time. So, um, yeah, I, uh, I, this wasn't the first shooting I was involved in. So, yeah, I had also uh, been arrested for shooting a, a young man in 1985, which is three years prior to my conviction. And we all live by street code where you don't tell, you don't testify. And the guy that I shot wouldn't testify. Uh, the witnesses wouldn't come to court. 
So all the charges were dropped against me. And it gave me a, a feeling of being invincible in the streets, right? Like you, I can do anything I want to do out here in these streets. And as long as I'm not caught by law enforcement at that time, then it's okay. You know, we, we live by a whole different set of values, a different set of rules and, and a different set of a different belief system. And I really just felt like this was okay. And this is what I'm supposed to do in order to survive these streets. So yeah, it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't pretty. It, it was very irresponsible. It was, you know, I, I, I did, but I didn't understand right then, you know, it was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. So, yeah. So there was really no, there was nothing uh, instigating uh, you to reflect on that when you're on the streets. You're just kind of in that world. There wasn't any reason to question it, right? There's, right. There's no reason. And, and, and the sad part is I have two younger brothers who both have been uh, arrested or, or convicted of also shooting people, right? So it was like, this is our lifestyle. This is what we know nothing else. This is what we know. We know the streets, yeah. right? And so when you know the streets, you try to uh, maneuver through those streets the best way you know how and as safe as you can without someone else taking your life without without you getting hurt out there. So, yeah. And and I did it to the best of my ability. So then when you when you did end up going to prison uh, and you went through a number of facilities, uh, but really to kind of help our audience understand you know, what people face when they when they end up in prison, and especially when they come from the streets. Right. And that same street culture is inside the prisons. Right. Uh, right. Sometimes even the same gangs and different things. But but it's that culture. So, uh, you know, and it was quite a while before you got involved in any kind of effort to turn your life around. Right. So what was that like? You know, what was, you know, to, to fit in and, and just survive in prison? Uh, before you had the opportunity to even think about changing? What were those years like in prison? Um, it, it was tough. So when I went to, I, I uh, got to the reception center at San Quentin in 1991, I want to say. And it was it was the biggest, it's the most afraid I've ever been in my life. I'll put it to you that way. Mm -hmm. um, I walked into a building at San Quentin with a life sentence, not knowing anyone, right? And this is where you go to decide where you're going to start your, your prison sentence. So they classify you there and then they put you on a bus within 90 days and they send you off somewhere else. Uh, I was scared. I, I walked in. I didn't know anybody. I, I was on the first tier and I looked up and it was five tiers high. And I'm like, wow, what am I going to do? Right. I really got myself into a situation here. And I knew that there were uh, there were men inside that prison who who we're also there for uh, either taking lives or attempting to take lives. And a lot of them still had that mindset. Right. So it's like, OK, I'm here now without a gun. So uh, I have to man up. Right. And that was, that was my mindset. It's time to man up. Right. So I went in and I decided to be the best convict or the best criminal that I can be. And I just started learning the ropes from the OGs and guys who have been doing the time since the 60s and 70s. and. And they just taught me the way. And I I, I learned how to support myself uh, in prison by making uh, prison wine. Uh, I sold drugs in prison. I did, I did anything that I can do to survive because I had given up and I felt like this is where I'm going to die. This is where I'm going to spend the rest of my life. 
So I'm, I need to be as comfortable as possible and I need to, I need to be respected. Right. So I, 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 I did whatever I needed to do to be respected, to be amongst my peers and, and what we call cars. And what a car is like the, the group of individuals that you associate and hang out with. And it can be a gang or it could be people from your city or your neighborhood or whatever the case may be. Right. And I just felt like I need to be a leader within within this cohort of, of uh, fellow uh, prisoners. and. That's what I did. I went in and I, um, yeah, I, I just put down my values at, at that time and my belief system. And it was about reviewing other people's paperwork and making sure that they weren't in there for uh, what the prison hierarchy considers to be uh, crimes that aren't acceptable in prison and rolling people up off of yards because they are here for a crime that I felt at the time was uh, not up to the standards of, of the crimes that we should be committing on the streets, right? So, you know, you have people with sex offenses or offenses against children. And within that hierarchy, we felt like those kinds of people shouldn't be here on the main line with us. So we would roll up people and make them by rolling up means uh, whether by force or by, you know, violence, force, whatever you needed to do to get that person off of the yard, right? And into a different, where they would be. Uh, and some people got hurt along the way. And some people, you know, just was like, okay, I'm going to go tell the people I can't be here and I'm going to roll up my stuff and I'm going to leave. But then you run into resistance. You run into people who feel like, you know, I'm just doing my time and I'm not going nowhere. So when you tell a person they have to leave the yard and they don't go, then you have to do it by force and you have to remove them by force. So, yeah, I was a part of all that uh, senseless behavior when I went to prison. And again, that's kind of the not not to justify it in any way, but that's it, the world you were in. Right. And you thought yeah. that was going to be your life from then on in. Right. So right. you got to have you got to have, you know, you got to have some people to hang with. You got to keep yourself safe. You got to, you know, take care of yourself. Right. Right. So, and, and it's, yeah. And can I say this? Fully? Yeah. Yeah. Belief. Please. Yeah, the belief system is, and my belief system was, I had to do this to be accepted by my older homeboys and, mm -hmm. and the people who taught me how to do time, right? And it, there was like, I, I felt a sense of failure if I didn't uh, 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 participate in this kind of activities. And, you know, people who were who we felt shouldn't be here were here on the line with me on the same yard with me. Mm -hmm. How would they look at me if I didn't handle this? Right. Mm -hmm. So in order to be accepted, I, I did anything uh, that I could do to be accepted by those people. Yeah. And I mean, that's generally what we do as human beings. Any social structure we find ourselves in, we try to do what we need to do to, to survive and, you know, and to be OK and be accepted and so forth. So when did things begin to shift for you? I mean, you talked about finding your way into that Jacques Verdun's first program, what was called Casargio or something like that? Casargio, yeah. Yeah, yeah but well, how did you even get interested in that? Or what? When did things actually begin to shift? When did you start having any kind of different thoughts going through your head? Um, that's it. Well, I, I, when I got to San Quentin, they put me in the cell with a guy. He was an older gentleman. Uh, he was my mother's age, and his name was Watani. And Watani was a part of Jock's class, the Katarjo uh -huh. class. And he could see that I there was a lot of work that I needed to do. 
And he just came to the cell one day and said, hey, we got an opening in class. Would you like to, to join? And I was like, well, I'm not doing anything else, right? So I might as well go see what everybody else is doing, right? So I went to the class, to Jackson Cartagio group. And I, I was there for at least seven years, right? <laughs> so uh, seven, eight years in Cartagio, if not longer. And it, it was just, I, I didn't understand at first, right? Uh, guys were opening up and talking about their life and talking about their past traumas and, you know, I, and I was just uh, there. I, I wasn't really serious about changing my life. I was just uh, showing up to have something to do. It kept me from being locked in my cell at four o'clock during count time. I would be out of the cell. But what, and I always I kept getting in trouble. I was still selling drugs. I was still drinking. I was still doing a lot of things that I shouldn't be doing. But one of the things about that was uh, the compassion that was shown to me. Even when I went to the hole, they always saved my space in the group for me. So they never filled my slot with someone else. When I came out of the hole, as long as I didn't get transferred out of that prison, I always had a spot available. So uh, Jock would just take me back with open arms and they met me where I was at, right? They, we're going to meet you where you are and you can make that change when, when you're ready to make it. And I think my change came in 2009. Uh, myself and my younger brother were in ADSEG together. And my brother got validated as a gang member and sent to the indeterminate shoot program at Pelican Bay State Prison. Okay. And I kept telling myself, if I get out of this one, I'm done, right? And I went to a one my uh, disciplinary hearing and the lieutenants found me not guilty. And it was like, I, I was in shock. I was found not guilty of the offenses. And I, and I always was a person who stayed true to my word. If I said I was going to do something, I did it. So I kept saying, if I get out of this, I'm going to change. And that's what I did. So in 2009, I started kind of really paying attention to what was going on in these groups that I was attending and not just being there physically. I, I started being there mentally and spiritually also. And really paying attention and listening to what was going on. And when uh, when GRIP started in 2011, I was lucky enough to be selected into that process. And uh, GRIP was about being a peacemaker. And I just went through the process and, and, I, and I signed my pledge as a peacemaker. And as of that day, I, I've never uh, been involved in violence. I don't I don't believe in violence. I don't believe in hurting anyone. And any situation that I can find uh, where I can find space to make peace, I, I do that. Right. So, yeah, it, it was a big change for me and a big uh, it was a blessing. Wow. Well, it sounds like even through the years where you were in the Casargio program uh, and you were, you know, kind of in, but not completely in and hadn't bought in completely, still involved in, in you know, in the life uh, in prison and uh, still getting in trouble that. But nonetheless, there was this new community in which you were finding acceptance. Right. And uh, and probably there were even some people that had been in that community longer than you were, you know, there to mentor you. And, you know, there's some parallel between, you know, uh, if we can see what what helps people change is, you know, we all have a lot of needs as human beings. And so that need for acceptance is really strong. The need for a community the need for, you know, understanding, OK, how do I how do I make my life work here? 
And so over time, you're in this new community that just meeting you where you are, accepts you as you are, always holds a place for you, even when you went to Ad Sag or the hole and came back. And, and, and yet, you know, over time, you're learning a new way to make your life work. Yes. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so important um, for people incarcerated. And, and I try to do the thing, same thing now that I, I facilitate inside prison, right? I always try to make space for a person to be safe and feel safe and always, if they have to leave for something, I always leave that space open for them to come back. And mm -hmm. although they may not graduate and complete that, that support system is still there for them. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And it, it was so, uh, it, it meant so much during my process, right. That I, I want to make that available for people who are going through our program also. Yeah. And just as an aside, you know, I think a lot of people, some people in our audience that maybe aren't from California or the Bay Area, but have heard of San Quentin. It's a pretty infamous prison and right. uh, it's where death row is and or at least one of the death rows in California. I don't know if they have more than one, but uh, but it's actually a very program centric uh, facility, as you were saying. And uh, I've heard it sometimes there's like over a thousand volunteers that, that go in there doing programs because it's right there in the Bay Area, surrounded by you know, San Francisco and Marin County and, you know, the East Bay and all that. So there's all these people there to bring in programs. So it's kind of an odd mixture of being this old, you know, hardline prison, maximum security prison right there in the middle of all these resources. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the um, the blessing about San Quentin, the, the, uh, where it's located. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you got Marin right there. You got Oakland, San Francisco. You got you got every city basically around San Quentin. So the, the volunteers who do come into that prison are so important to the transformation of people inside of that prison, right? Mm -hmm. Because I don't think I would have ever made that transformation without people coming in, volunteering, and making uh, groups available. And, you know, I've been through restorative justice groups. I've been through uh, emotional intelligence groups. You know, without all of the, these tools that they're making available to us at San Quentin, there wouldn't be room for people to make transformation, right? Because what's there is the prison culture. Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you're in a room, you do as the Romans do, right? So when you go in, into to prison and that's what's going on, the violence and the drugs and the alcohol and, you know, all the senselessness, the politics, you know, you just, you get involved. You know, so if you want to fit in, if you want to be uh, uh, accepted, you end up getting involved in those things. And then when you can get somewhere like San Quentin, and like I said, it was culture shock to see people run into college and the self-help groups. And, and I had never saw that before. Right. I had been at the time I arrived at San Quentin, I had been incarcerated 14 years. I had never saw people doing that before. So it was like, man, maybe it's something I, I can do also. Right. I heard the first. One of my group facilitators uh, who facilitated me through the program was a guy named Robin Gill. And I watched him in another group when he stood up to speak. And he just was so intelligent. And he just spoke, you know, he spoke like a professional. And I was like, is this guy really wearing blue, a blue uh, prison uniform, right? Like me? And I said, that's something I would love to do one day, right? So I just watched and I, and I just took it all in. And he had told me about Toastmasters and different things that he had participated in to teach him how to present and to speak well. And I was like, wow, that that's 
that's possible, right? I, I can change. I can do something different. So, yeah, I had a lot of mentors and people who just guided me along the way. Well, what you're talking about, it's just so important. And, you know, for all, all the people, I mean, our audience, I think, are mostly people really interested in work. And a lot of the people who are doing this work and, you know, and this is what inspires us. And, and but this is what really makes it work, what you're talking about, because absent people coming in and offering a different culture, a different way of being a different possibility. You know, I remember during during doing my time, you know, the weekly 12 step group that I went to that I was always a leader in. Uh, you know, the the people that came in from the outside, we had wonderful NA and AA sponsors and, you know, they just treated you like another human being. And, right. you know, they, we were all just, they were, they were drunks and addicts. We were drunks and addicts. There was no barrier. Right. And right. so it was like for that, you know, a couple hours that we were up in that meeting, you weren't really in prison. You weren't right. in that culture. Right. There was another possibility, uh, you know, and had had some other opportunities like that. But there's a really strong convict culture in the prison. Then there's the, the correctional staff have their culture and those two cultures tend to demonize each other. Right. Right. And so, you know, and, you know, there, there are, can be some staff that don't, you know, that treat people like human beings. There's good, there's good staff there. It depends on who they're around, right. If the hard noses right. are around, they tend to go, go along with whatever's around. Right. right? But, yes. but, but still there aren't a lot of options uh, because you're not presented with a different culture, a different way of being. And then, and then to see some of your fellow prisoners, being different, right? In, in right. a in a good way, uh, you know, you get that sense of so, oh wow, that there's possibility there, and and that's what creates there. But absent that, um, how would you ever sense that there's another way to be or another possibility or have any hope that that could be there for you? Right. Right. Exactly. And and, and I think that type of support and just being around that is so important because I I, I used to sit up and watch guys walk away from a fight, right? And but they had been they had done their work on themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And they knew that they didn't have to prove anything to anybody else. And I was like, I want to get to that point one day, right? Where I can how can I walk away from a fight around all these people and not care what someone else has to say or how someone else feels about it, right? Mm-hmm. And just that mentorship from the, the people who have been through these programs and who have done that work. And their example and their walk in prison and showing that they're still safe, they're still here and they still walk with their head up high. It's like I inspired to be like that one day. Right. So and and that's that's what my journey was like. Right. So I I watched a lot of people I had good cellmates. I, uh, I encountered some real good OGs along the way who who saw a lot more in me than what I was showing and what I was offering. Right. So. Yeah, it's it's a big part of uh, successfully doing our time and and getting out of those mindsets of having to to be that convict, right? I, I didn't want to be a convict anymore. I just wanted mm-hmm. to to be a human being and, and get back home to my family. Yeah, I remember uh, another training that I had the the opportunity and the privilege of being able to do while I was inside. On the outside, it's called the event. Inside, I think it was called beyond release. It was the idea, you know, most people, we just think about getting out. Well, what's, what's going to happen when you get out, if you don't make changes, right? It was a very intense group process. And these outside facilitators came in and created a really safe environment in which people went, you know, we are are the, ourselves, the prisoners and my fellow prisoners would just go deep into sharing a lot of trauma 
And almost right. everybody there had severe trauma from their childhood. You, know, you look around, you go, no wonder they're in prison, right? It's a wonder, right. you know, they've survived this far. And, you know, we would create that environment. And, but they would tell us, you know, this is while you're up here, we're up there like 12 hours a day. Uh, and it was it was an intensive three day program. Then it had a, a follow up. But they said, OK, in this room, this is the human being realm. Right. Now, you go back out there, you know, or you got you got to, you know, put put your uh, put your thing back on, go out there and survive in that world. Then you come back here tomorrow, you'll be in a human being realm again. And we can do some right. real work. But, you know, this, it's about being a human being in here. Right. Right. And uh, so, yeah, I love I love that you said that. Well, let's talk more about the GRIP program, specifically Guiding Rage into Power. So my understanding is that it uh, it form, it's a year-long program. It forms a cohort, and you kind of have to uh, make some contractual agreement going into it. Right. And, and then you're really in this community for a year. Now, I know the content, uh, it's been described as a mindfulness-based emotional intelligence curriculum. Um, but it seems like a really powerful part of it is the community itself. Anyway, tell us a little bit about your first journey through GRIP when you went through the first time as a participant. Okay, so um, like I said, I went through GRIP in 2011. That was the very first uh, year GRIP was offered at San Quentin. And it was basically in its developmental stages. It, it, uh, they, they had just put the curriculum together and we were, you know, we were learning together, right? But uh, it's uh, basically we, it's a, at that time, it was a 52-week uh, model where you attended for two hours, once a week for 52 weeks, a year-long program. Uh, it's broken up into four sex, sessions, uh, different sections. It's stopping our violence, uh, developing emotional intelligence, understanding victim impact, and cultivating mindfulness. Um I, I didn't know what any of that stuff was when I went into grip, right? I had been through a few Vogue classes and things of that nature, but I had never really dove in that deep. Um, one of the, the first things we do in grip is build the safe container, right? So we do different exercises to show people how much we're more alike than we are different from one another. We calculate the number of years that everyone has spent in the tribe everyone in the tribe was, and this came later, the very first tribe, we we had calculated, but we didn't name our tribe that number, right? So what we do now is everyone in that room calculates the amount of time they've spent in prison, and we add it all up, and that becomes your tribe number. So one of my tribes now is uh, 1045, which means you have, amongst all the participants in the room, 1,045 years served in prison. Right. And uh, so and I've had groups like 644, 645. You know, you just add up those numbers and you start to look at, wow, we've been in prison this long. So then we add up how long did it take you to to make the decision to commit that crime that you committed? And you may have one thousand and forty five years and it took us less than two minutes for everyone in that class to be serving that amount of time. Right. And, and it's just when you start looking at it and you start thinking about it, you're like, wow, this is really, really impactful. And that one decision, I made that split decision and look at me now. I may never see the streets again or I've been gone for 40 years. I've been gone for 30 years. Right. And and you start to understand that none of this street life or these value systems are really worth what, what they, you know, they're built up to be. 
But it, it, it was a journey for me. And I, I learned so much about myself because we dive into childhood trauma. We, uh, we dive, dive into, you know, our belief systems and challenging those belief systems. And it, it just uh, the male role belief system, right? It, it, which is uh, we we call Mister BS, right? <laughs> so it's like as to be a man, these are all the things that I believe and I should do. And then you have to question that: is that true, it, uh, or do you really have to do that to be a man, or do you just do that because that's how you taught and that's what you believe, and you've never known another way to to, to solve a problem or, or to get past something. And and once you start challenging those things, you start to realize that, hey, I can be human differently. You know, I can I can find another way to live my life and to do things. So that first year in grip to me was so impactful at the end. Uh, and then we, we signed a pledge at the end. Right. So we signed a pledge. Well, we get the pledge in the beginning to learn it. And you, there's you go through the pledges and. And you start studying and learning. And one of my one of the pledges that I, I, I loved was learn to understand rather than be understood. See, my, my thing was always understand me. But once I started taking a step back to understand other people, you know, it brought about some empathy, right? So it, 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 the one that's one of the pledges that really stick with me throughout my life, right? But uh, just going through that and learning it, and then being invited to come back, it was, was powerful. But it, it, yeah, it's that circle, that process of being in the circle, building that strong bond among that circle and, and building that safe, that place to feel safe, to share what's been going on in my life and what I've been through and the, the challenges that I've encountered. And how do I get that? Because for a while, I never knew there was a way to get past those, those traumas in there, right? But just opening up and talking about it and processing those things is so powerful. It, it just helped me to become a different, well, I don't even want to say a different, to become my true authentic self. And that's what we teach in GRIP, to be your true authentic self. And there's nothing wrong with who you are. And, you know, because I, we get a lot of people who say, I'm here to be a better person. And we try to, but you can't, but we, we don't teach you to be a better person, but we can teach you. To, and show you how to get back to being your true authentic self and not having to be that person who has to impress everybody else or live for other people. I can live from inside out, right? Instead of outside and looking, you know, so yeah, it, it's a powerful experience. I know one of the unique features of the GRIP program is actually within the group, within the safety of that container, acknowledging crimes that have been committed, acknowledging harm that's been that, right. that we've done. Right. Right. And, you know, for many people who do prison work, they've probably heard, you know, you don't ever ask anybody what their crime was. You don't need to know that. They just come to the group. You accept them. Um, and, you know, that makes sense for a lot of groups because there isn't enough of a container with some, you know, weekly classes and this, that is, you know, there's just not that safety to ask people to, you know, talk about what they've done. And uh, but uh, I think that's a powerful part of grip and, and that that you are able to create that safe container in which men can 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 go. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of a uh, lot of us when we're in prison, we still want to hold on to some story about either we're innocent or 
or it wasn't our fault or somehow we got we got some story about it. Right. We haven't right. gotten to the place of saying, you know, I, I've even often heard, you know, uh, you know, our fellow prisoners, even in some films we've done, they'll talk about, uh, you know, the crime they're convicted of uh, almost in the, in the third person. You right. know, like not they don't you know, we don't say I did this. We say, well, right. that was my thing or that was what, you know. And right. so it seems like that's a lot of vulnerability and it requires a lot of safety to invite people to to move into that kind of acknowledgement. But it also seems like they could really be the beginning place for a lot of deep transformation. Yeah. And, and it is because I think along our journey in prison and I say I speak for myself. I, I, I lived in, in prison with a lot of shame, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and a lot of people ask me, why did you have shame? I said, because I shot a man because I believe he owed me $500 and I was willing to take someone's life behind $500, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of shame in that, right? Because life is so valuable and you can't put a price on someone's life, right? And for me, for a long time, I was I was proud that I shot someone who owed me money. But after I was able to sit back and start thinking about it, there was a lot of shame involved in that. And carrying that shame, it, it just uh, it can hold so many people back. Right. So making a, a, a space safe enough for me to talk about what I did and why I did it and then to fully understand that that wasn't the reason that I shot him. I shot him because of my belief system and what I believe other people would see. Like I was saying earlier about living from outside in, I was so concerned about how other people would look at me if someone owed me money and I didn't do anything about it. So this is my my response to that, right? Well, And I, and I won't even say my response. I'll say it's my reaction to that because yeah. a response is uh, thought out. And normally, well, you make a wise decision. Well, I didn't make a wise decision. so. You know, and a lot of people carry that, and especially around uh, crimes against children or ch- crimes against women, or you know, we have a, people in prison who are hiding and living in shame because it's not safe for them to talk about it, and they and you don't get the help that you need if you can't talk about why you're there, what you did, and so that safe container is so so important in helping people with their transformation and helping them to move forward and pass shame, a place of shame, right? Because there's a lot of, lot of shame carried behind the walls of prison. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you brought up that issue of shame. You know, uh, in my own experience, I felt like one of the things that made it really hard for people incarcerated uh, to turn their lives around because the minute you get arrested, you're kind of being buried under this mountain of shame and demonization. The whole process of being arrested and prosecuted and incarcerated, you know, intentionally or by default, it just ends up being this huge exercise in, in shaming and, and being right. stripped of your identity and othered and turned into a number. And and right. so, you know, instinctually, we're just trying to protect ourselves, right? trying to survive even psychologically, psychically. And so we tend to armor up with anger armor up with our own victim story, armor up with, you know, bitterness, right? And that prevents us from having the, the being able to go inside and, and connect with that vulnerability and connect with a genuine sense of regret over the harm we've, we've caused in the past, with whatever we've been involved in, right? 
Right. Um, and, and so, and that makes it very hard for people to turn around because and in some ways the, 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 uh, for me in my own life, really, you know, when I, when I went in, uh, what really was crushing for me was realizing what I'd done to my son. He was nine years old when I went in. Right. right? And I just went through a huge dark night of soul, finally having to face all the incredibly selfish decisions I've been making and putting his life at risk, his mom's life at risk. And now he was going to grow up without a dad. Cause I originally was sentenced to 30 years, no parole. Right. And, uh, fortunately I lost five on appeal that down to 25. And fortunately I was sentenced in the old law of fed. So you got a lot of good time if you stayed out of trouble. So right. I ended up serving 14 and a half, but initially, you know, and, and still my, my son had to grow up without a dad during his formative years from nine to, you know, plus 14, you know, 19, 20 from, from nine to 23, he didn't have a dad. Right. right. And so that was crushing for me, but, you know, and, and so I was really facing that. But at the same time, I was still like justifying, you know, I've been involved in cocaine smuggling and drug dealing and so forth. And I still justified that in my head somewhere. It was like recreational. Everybody was doing it. Judges and lawyers did it. You know, I, and it wasn't until I sat in the 12 step groups week after week, you know, and listen to one man after another talk about how his life unraveled and his family's life unraveled around coke and crack and everything that, you know, that I, I, that artifice of my self-defense and my justification began to crumble. I mean, even for a while, because I was involved in smuggling powder cocaine, I thought, well, crack, that's something else. I wasn't involved in that. But then, you know, even that, I couldn't hold on to that anymore. And after a couple of years, I had to really face the fact that I've been doing really harmful things. And, right. and who knows how many people might even have died uh, from the drugs that I sold and brought right. into the country, right? And so, you know, and, and that was really painful to face myself, but in some ways, and then what developed in me was this deep longing just to cause no more harm. Right. You know, I also wanted, I was, you know, inspired by Buddhist traditions that I also wanted to do good, but I also, I just had this profound longing to just not cause any more harm. And that really started with, you know, without any more defenses, acknowledging the harm that I'd done and feeling that, re, that remorse and that deep regret in a way that didn't self shame myself, but was just, you know, wow. I, so it was about the other people. It was about the people that got harmed. Right. And so if we can't get to that experience, it's very hard to turn our life around. Yes, it is. And I feel lucky that I got there, but the good thing about the grip program is you create the safe container for people to, to get to that place. Right. And we, and, and I love that you said that because the ripple effects of, of our actions, right. I had never thought about, the ripple effects and how it was my, my life in the streets and out there selling drugs. I had three daughters at that time. Right. And when I was convicted, my two youngest daughters were four months old and my oldest daughter, uh, right before her sixth birthday, I, I was, I was arrested three days before her sixth birthday. And when I got out, they were grown women, 34, you know, 34 years old and 28 years old. And it's like, wow, I, I really took all of this away from them. Right. So it's like I never considered my actions and what it did to the rest of the world, and not only my community and my family, but it, there's a ripple effect on everybody when we go out and we commit these crimes, right? So when I was out there running around with guns and shooting people and selling drugs, everything I did affected someone else in a different way, right? And I had no, I didn't even think about it. It, it wasn't my concern. Today, that has to be a concern. Every step that I make, every move I make, I do, I'm conscious of how does this affect other people, right? 
and how does this affect my family? And, and, and it, it's powerful when, when you can just hold that within in your heart and understand that it's so powerful and, and moving forward every day in life. So, yeah, I'm, I thank you for saying that. Well, let, let's talk about and thank you for everything you're sharing with us today, Barnard. It's so powerful. Let's talk about getting out. Um, what was it like for you getting out? And I'd also like to hear about what, you know, your work now as a facilitator in the GRIP program. But just what was the transition like coming back to the world for you? And you're, you know, I see you came back, you know, I assume you live not far from where you were, you know, in the life before. Right. And now you're out. And I don't know whether you started running into the same people again or what it was like for you. So just talk about the transition coming out. OK, so for me, my transition was was fairly easy, right? I, I have, I, I was married in 2014 and I paroled in 2016. Um, my wife has been amazing. She was there for me. She, uh, she just, she's been there every step of the way to help me technology wise. I had no idea how to use a computer when I came home, how to answer an email, how to any of that. None of that stuff was around in 1988. So um, for me, just coming out and, and, and her assistance and help and uh, my family, my mother and my daughters and just uh, um, my wife's children, all my kids, they, they're all wonderful, right? And they all assist me and help me to help me stay on the right track. And uh, yeah, my, my transition was easy. And I came out with the mindset of whatever I need to do to be successful and to help my family, that's what I'm going to do. So when I came home, I took a job for minimum wage, working on the side of the freeway, picking up trash. And it, it was like the most fulfilling thing that I've done in my life, right? I, I'm out and I'm helping. And it, it was through an organization that paid you every day once you came home, uh, back to the shed, the, the, the garage. And I used to make, after taxes, $88 a day. And I was just so thrilled to be making that $88 a day that I would give my wife $80 and I would put $8 in my pocket, right? And it was like, I'm finally contributing to paying bills and to, to just buying groceries and to help, right? And, and it's something I had never done before in my life because I've always been selfish. You know, I sold drugs for me and I sold drugs so I can look good and, and do the things that I wanted to do. And now I'm doing for others, right? And I'm, I'm helping and, and that transformation of coming home to something like that was just powerful. And I don't think I'd have been able to do it without her. I, I, it would have been it would have been difficult. So uh, uh, big clap for my wife, Marissa, thank you for helping me. And yeah, it's just been, uh, it's been, it's been different. So the world from 1988 to 2016 uh -huh. was yeah, I walked into like a Costco, right? And, and I would look at all these big box items in this big uh, warehouse store and like, what is this, right? And just, it's, it can be overwhelming, right? And without that support and someone there to help you just adapt to those things, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot. And I was able to have someone there to hold my hand to help me get through that stuff and, and not be so overwhelmed with what's going on in society. And learning how to pump gas again and, and use a, a debit card to, to pump your gas and not going to clerk to pay your money. For, you know, all that was just a, a culture shock and a change to me. So, yeah, my transition back into society has been uh, adventurous. It's been fun. 
but I've enjoyed every step of it, right? And like I say out, I say my worst day out here in society is better than my best day inside free. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm willing to take on any and everything that comes my way. Well, it sounds like you were really fortunate to have great support systems in place. But, you know, that's also a reflection of the change in you. That's a reflection of your mindset, yes. uh, because unfortunately, a lot of us, when we get out of prison, if we haven't been through that, that, that transformation, we kind of come out almost with a feeling of entitlement, like the world owes us something. Right. Yeah. And we yeah. can have the mindset that doesn't invite people to want to support us. Right. So I'm sure part of, you know, your marriage and, and, and reuniting with your family and the welcome you've received and the support you received is really about who you're being today, that you are being Bernard's true, authentic self. And, and instead right. of that, that thing that you had created early on to survive and be accepted and so forth. Yes, true. And, and it also helped me with the understanding of being away from my, my children for 28 years. Right there's going to be some animosity and there's going to be some yeah. feelings and, and feeling uh, some yeah. anger and, and, and bad. So I, I, I was prepared for that. Right. And I was prepared to accept that and to, to work through it. And, you know, Hey, you could, it's okay to be upset with me and it's okay to be mad with me because I left you. Right. And for so many years, I always thought like people out there weren't dealing but I have to come to the understand I left society. I made a conscious decision to, to commit a crime, to be taken away from society. And people aren't obligated to, to, to be there for me, right? So uh, I, I had to really come to understand that it's okay that I was the one uh, who made that decision. I was the one who left. And people are going to be upset with me now that I come home and I need to be open to working through those uh, those situations and and trying to get things back on track. So it'll really be. Wow. Well, understanding all that, um, not only how to turn your life around inside, but also, you know, what it takes to really transition out and to really own the impact we've had on people and be willing to, you know, listen to their pain and their anger and, and work through that. Uh, I'm sure makes you a fabulous mentor for for the men you work with today. So tell us just a little bit, we're about near the end of our time here, but tell us just a little bit about the work you do for GRIP now. Okay, so today I'm I'm senior facilitator at the GRIP Training Institute. Um, I facilitate at San Quentin, Mill Creek, and uh, where am I? So those are my main two prisons right now. I'm also in the, uh, getting ready to start at Corcoran, start a program there uh, called A Breath of Freedom, which GRIP offers. And it's a four month pilot program to where uh, people, we introduce people to mindfulness. So I'm part of that. And we're also, uh, we have a women's initiative and we're trying to get into Chowchilla to do the same work with the women there at Chowchilla. Um, it's, it's, my work is very fulfilling. I get to uh, go in and uh, put together to try the same uh, process that I went to to get in grip. We take people through that process of uh, selecting tribes and naming our tribes. And I get to facilitate and, and give the information. I always tell uh, being a facilitator is like being a coach, right? You, 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 you make the information available for people and you, you show them how to, to how to uh, internalize this information and, and then to do this work. And then it's in their hands, right? I can't play the game, but I, I can sit on the sideline and I can watch. 
So I, I'm, I'm able to, to, to be able to do that. And it, it's really, really powerful. Um, I've built some great relationships throughout the years. I've learned. Uh, and one of my biggest things was judging people, right? And I get to do this work free of judgment of any and everyone, right? Everyone is welcome in my tribe, right? And we just select some who we feel are the best fit for this tribe and get that uh, that process going. And I won't say we do two separate processes of the GRIP program. So we have a weekly process where we meet for two hours once a week for 52 weeks. And then we have a 13-month process where we meet once a month for eight hours. And wow. that's, yeah, and that's one of the uh, things we do at Mill Creek. So I'm able to do the eight-hour classes, which are really, really powerful because you really get that bonding time in circle for eight hours in the day. And then we have small groups that are ran by our, our inside facilitators throughout that month. And then we come back that following month and we, we process everything we've learned. And it's just, it's, it's fulfilling. And I, I really enjoy this work. What's it like for you to go back into those same facilities where you did your time as a free person, be able to walk in and walk out? Uh, it, it's, it's nice. I, I had a little, I, I was a little scared in the beginning. I, I, I didn't know if it, when I walked in, if they were going to let me back out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so when I went inside, you know, I, I had those butterflies and I was a little nervous. But after about two or three times inside, it's just like, hey, this is the work that I do and I'm comfortable and I'm just going to go in here and do the best job that I could possibly do. And it's, it's a powerful for the people inside to see someone who used to be in the same position they're in now coming back inside to help facilitate. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, it makes the whole thing so much more believable to see you. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so I'm yeah. re- grateful to be able to offer that to people inside. Wow, fabulous. Well, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us today, Bernard. And thank you for being you and for taking the amazing journey you've, you've made and, and uh, for everything you're doing now to continue to serve and show up for the, for the folks who are still going through that same journey we went through. So just thank you so much for being part of our summit. Thank you. Hey, I appreciate this opportunity just to uh, get word out about the group program and, and to talk about my life and, you know, my transformation. So thank you so much, Fleet. I appreciate you. Uh, you take care, Bernard. Be well. You too. You have a great day. Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.